0: Learning Books with Eric beck Hello. Today, something a little different on the pod. And that's an interview with Todd Hasek-Lowy about a specific novel, about its neighboring novels, about different writing cultures, English and Hebrew, and the difference that culture can make in the books that are available for us to read. Todd Hasak-Lowy is an author, author of fiction, nonfiction, young adult, children's fiction, a teacher of literature and composition at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and a translator, specifically the translator of Netanya by Dora Burstein, the novel just reviewed on this series of pods. For those of you who have yet to listen to that episode, Natanya is a wonderful book to read and a difficult book to describe. It is part memoir, part history, part marine biology, astronomy, anthropology, and I could go on. One of its virtues is that it does, thematically and in its ambition, go on and on and on. And I loved reading it. It's been years since I read it and it still visits me from time to time. But trying to describe what it is and how it works, that would take someone who has read it more closely than I did. About 10 months ago, the Israeli micro short story writer, Edgar Carrot, came to Toronto and I got to ask him about what he's reading. I specifically asked about this book, Netanya. He said he knew the book, that he hadn't read it, but that he recalled the translator saying that it was a masterpiece. And I started by relaying this to Todd, then asking him, having heard my own attempts to describe Netanya, how he would try.
1: Well, it's, I mean, I would give you the answer that Drawer gave me, which is prose. That's as specific as he's willing to be. Um, I don't think it's fiction or nonfiction. I don't think it's solely memoir. I think it's natural science writing. So I think it's this weird, and I think it's consciously this weird collage of genres and forms, um, and the only thing they share in common is their their prose. Their, I guess it's all narrative prose, so maybe I would say that, but beyond that I think it is too scattered to fall into any sort of neat category.
0: So for somebody like myself, who this is, his first, you know, this is my first experience with Burstein, is this the kind of thing he does?
1: So first of all, I have not read lots of his work. I've read parts of lots of his work, and I'm aware of what he's put out. He's published a number of just regular novels in the sense of you would read it, not have any trouble classifying it as such. He's written some nonfiction. He wrote a book about meat. He's a very, very serious vegan. hes I know he's been writing a book on um, the stars, like a science book of some sort, though I assume it's essays. Uh, he does poetry. A thing he said to me that I thought made a lot of sense, which will maybe answer this question in a roundabout way, was... He and I, we have done one event together when he happened to be in Chicago and we went to an event in the University of Chicago. And I can't even remember the question that led him to this answer, but he said, you know, the authoritative work on the history of modern Hebrew prose is by the scholar Gershon Shaked. It's five volumes long, and it's encyclopedic, and you know, Hebrew literature is a small enough literature that you can actually really address just about everything. Okay. And he said, the astonishing thing about the book is he never mentions a Another artwork or art form in it he never talks about painting he never talks about film he never talks about drama well he probably talks a little bit about drama because some of the same people were writing them but i think drawer was kind of astounded by that answer because he he thought of it as this way in which somebody had erected a border around an area of literary production that seemed just absurd to him not to say that you can't write a history like this, but Dror says, the people I'm in dialogue with aren't necessarily writers. They aren't even necessarily artists, right? I might be in my writing as much in dialogue with an astronomer as I am with Edgar Carrick. So and I think that I think that is finds its expression in his work. Does that make
0: sense? Uh, that makes perfect sense. One of the one of the people or the the tandem w- with whom he's in constant conversation are um, Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee who are the authors of Rare Earth which by the way, I've deliberately not looked up to see if it's a real book or not. I know oh,
1: it is it is. Okay.
0: So one of the ways I thought about trying to understand what's going on in this book, which doesn't have much of a coherent plot or really cohesion thematically, spatially, temporally, all these things, is that, you know, maybe George Burstein sees himself as a kind of net through which all these things pass and some just get caught on the cords. And that's what he presents to the reader. And, and, And the cohesion is that he's one consciousness. And if it passes through him, then that's that's enough. I mean, is that sort of, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think at the least you're in the ballpark. I mean, I I think one of the things about this book, as far as I understand it, I think I probably spent more time translating it than he spent writing it. And so I think it was a book that he wrote over the course of this sort of intense, I mean, it's a cliche to use the word, but I think it's 100% the right word. He has this sort of epiphany, just being sort of thunderstruck and floored by the awareness of how absurd his existence is. So I think for him the epiphany isn't um, sort of vague or general or abstract, but is the result of a a good amount of focused reading on the matter. So instead of sort of, I think we all know uh, in some general way that it's pretty unlikely that there's this thing called Earth that is host to life. Um, but he's reading about it, and, and and not only is he reading about it, but I think in the process he's learning that it's even more unlikely
0: than you or I would sort of think in general that it is. And so I think he sort of finds himself
1: steeped in the subject and steeped in the details of it, and the force of that epiphany then is is much greater um, and has kind of, I think, a real sort of three-dimensionality to it. So it, it's not just... You know well it has something to do with the quality of the air or the distance from the sun or whatever i mean and so there's that fir- one of the first details in the book is where he just talks about the moon and he enumerates it's like a list i can't remember it's like the tilt of the earth's axis and the tides and something that's allowing the seasons and it's this whole thing and you realize like this is a partial list of a partial factor of a much longer list right yeah and so i think right off the bat then it's sort of that's the way that he communicates to us that this epiphany as cliched as it may be in general the encounter we're about to have with it is not you 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 haven't been down this road yet and and i think that's kind of what launches the book in a way
0: Relistening to the pot, I, I use this word precious, which is just a terrible word because it's so rightly shot upon. But in this case, he really does make you feel that there are so many things that are required for you, for him not only to exist, but for him to have written this book, for you to, right. to read the book. I mean, there's such a chain of events. That any one link is so fragile in itself that yes, I mean, it is kind of the right word. He earns it, he earns it, like you're yes. saying.
1: So I think somehow what comes out of that, I mean, I don't know the right language to talk about this, but he sort of, he taps into this like channel of of energy and awareness, and this, this sort of wondrous set of thoughts, and, he, and it pours out, and when it's done pouring out, I mean, I think, so you said when we just got on, that that Edgar Carrot told you that I think it's a masterpiece. I don't actually think it's a masterpiece, because I actually think it's quite uneven. Not if it's bad but it, you feel it run out of energy near the end. And he's aware of it, he remarks on it. And I, lo- I think the sections at the end are beautiful, and there's these really nice nuggets, but I think the book has, the book explodes at the beginning. And the first 30 or 40 pages I think are stupendous. And then the rest of it I think is quite good. But I think by the time you get to the end, he's aware, it, I, I said what I had to say on this. Like what whatever this breakthrough led me to, I've sort of exhausted it to an extent, at least for this project. Now, of course, we can tell in his life that that's not the case because, as I mentioned before, he's writing a book about the stars now. And the book he wrote after this which is called Sister's Son, opens with this scene in which one of the people is looking at fossils and and all these kind of things and thinking about geological times or epochs and and those kind of things. And so it it, it was very clear reading that novel that he wasn't done with these issues in Natanya, but now he was doing the kind of more conventional novelistic move, which was he was folding it into a a fictional narrative.
0: still interested in the same subjects. Right, precisely. So because you had said what's interesting about Natanya
1: is it sort of seems like an opening volley, fragmented and raw, that a different kind of writer a novelist would take that and immediately start figuring out how do I fold it into this larger, seamless, novelistic project that does all the things a novel does, but it also has this set of details to it. And it seems like he chose not to do that in writing Natanya, but sort of said, well, I'm interested in this material, I'm going to write about it in a very direct way and tie it in, in this unusual way with my own story and not simply immediately be like, okay, how can I make this part of the sort of set design or character structure of a regular novel?
0: One of the things that I tried to reconcile, could never really do in a way that was satisfactory to me, were the personal elements of the story. And I was wondering how you thought that those autobiographical histories fit into this larger structure.
1: Well, I think... I think they fit in let's okay i'm going to try and remember all three of these i'm sure i'm not going to the first is the clear connections of the biography which is how it opens right i made a telescope when i was 14. Mm-hmm. so it's almost like a thematic or subject link Yep. okay that's number one number two is it's a book about existence so the universe exists and i exist and i'm going to talk about my existence in the context of all these other things
0: okay and existence is complicated the third, and this is almost an anti-way,
1: is that I think the third way it fits is that it forces the reader to figure it out. Like, it, it's just, I mean, it's a juxtaposition. You put two things next to each other and you ask the, this viewer to, okay, what are we looking at when we look at these together? Yeah. And I don't think you can, that last one is something that not everybody's willing to participate in, right? This book's not for everyone, and I think it, get supported by the first two. Like I don't think it can do. It can be all the motivation or justification itself. That third one, but in the company of the other two, I think it. I think it does. Um, so that's sort of how I, I, I. That's how I would make sense of it.
0: Okay. Well, so a couple questions for, for you about that. I mean, the one is the title itself. Why does it? Why Netanya, which is a city on the coast right. of Israel? Is there something about the town that I don't know?
1: You know, I think there's a little whimsy to it. I mean, I do think it's a book, like based on what I said before, it's one of these like first thought, best thought books. Like, I assume it sort of suggested itself at some point, and he thought, and certainly right, like the marketing people at Penguin probably wouldn't accept Tanya, But then again, they probably wouldn't accept the book. Yeah. But it's another thing that I think it's something like as a reader, well, it's a book about home.
0: The project is so different from your typical novel, and I still do think it's a novel. I think it's a novel because I think that a novel can contain all these things, and I think that...
1: Sure. um, Well, the novel's sort of a garbage can genre, so if it's... To say it's prose is the same as saying it's a novel in some sense. I think if any parts of it seem novelistic, then anything else, any other prose style can be contained in that
0: one of the reasons I really enjoyed reading the book is because it took me to such a bizarre headspace. Um, I, I, and I'm still having trouble describing. And I, I think that it, the way it eludes definition is part of its power. So I'm wondering, what's its afterlife for you?
1: So I'm not taught it. I give it to people. It's a book I really like to give to people. Well, for the right person, and I, I and I don't just give it to everybody because it's a book really not for everybody. <laughs> you know, like your your friends, you know that like they want to go into that space. It takes them there in a really great way.
0: Like you said, with the right person, it will hit a lot of notes that just aren't hit. There's a Canadian composer, and he composed a, a piece that I think plays 23 years long or something like that. This <laughs> seems to me that this book, Natanya, is like a few years in the life of a much larger project and the book he's working on now that you described earlier seems to be another element of this project and and maybe put all together you'll have this catalog and in this catalog maybe some larger themes or some through themes will present themselves. Um, But until then, what you have are these elements and that's another reason why this book really stands out for me. I think of a lot of North American or English books that I read, and they don't have that kind of outlook. Or if I could put it a little bit differently, um, many writers will revisit certain themes throughout all their books, but most, I think, want to get a complete encapsulation of their self-expression within single volumes. I'd say few are content with thinking of an individual novel as a rough building block towards a much bigger project and open-ended project. I think we see novels as things that must be more self-coherent, uh, polished, uh, complete within themselves.
1: I mean, I think one thing about the book is that it's very, very raw, and it's a very good version of raw. I mean, most, we you're a writer, I'm a writer, we know that most of our raw stuff maybe like it's good that it's not published like that but you also must know that like if you're any good you have moments where you actually do write something whether it's a paragraph or 10 pages or maybe a few times in your life and survive that and there's a certain kind of real energy and and a aliveness that gets through yeah. but i also think what happens in a lot of cases is that there is a certain kind of life that's a little bit beaten out of the work and to make it conform to a certain set of of convention. I think to a certain extent, there's a certain way in which the novel sort of mainstream literary fiction that it's very, very manicured. And the best of those novels somehow are both manicured
0: but still seem spontaneous, right?
1: When you read a real masterpiece, I don't know. I'm trying to think of one that also isn't really experimental, but it's just so good. Leaving the Atocha Station by Ben Langer. Yes.
0: I-, I hear what you're saying because there are certain elements of that book, for example, when he copies the email that you feel like this is an email he has copied and he hasn't really done much with it. and. There it is. He's presenting it in a novel and he's not messing with the, the energy of this original idea too much.
1: I've taught that book a few times and we always look at that email because it so doesn't belong with the rest of the book. It is the most one of these things. is not like the other moments in the book. I don't know. Maybe it was a riff, but I don't think it was a riff in the same way that I think this book was something of a riff. And I don't say that I'm a huge jazz fan. That is not an insult.
0: What I liked about Natanya, why I still think about Natanya, is that it took me to a headspace that I don't really inhabit when I'm reading most novels. I don't know what's going to happen next. I legitimately don't, and there are no clues.
1: But you trust Yeah.
0: So if I were to try to give some kind of explanation to that, I would say that there's great authority in the way that Burstein writes. Um, But I'm reading the book in translation and I'm curious to know as a translator whether you see the same kind of authority at work and you know how it sounds to you directly you know I guess uh firsthand
1: so yeah I mean in 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 this cutsy book I think it's called The Diary of a Bad Year, Coetzee, who wrote Disgrace, the yep. South African writer. Yeah. But there's a thing in there where he quotes Tolstoy or somebody talking about Tolstoy, but they're saying that the mystery of writing is that authority is sort of built out of nothing. It's always like a kind of an alchemy, creating a machine while you're driving in it somehow. And he says that the master of that is Tolstoy. Like No one built authority like Tolstoy.
0: And in the context of contemporary Hebrew literature, how does he Compared to his peers,
1: I mean, I think part of it, I think, his prose is beautiful. It's why I wanted to 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 translate the book because that's as a translator, that's all you. That's all I want, right? If I'm going to spend literally, it's like transplanting someone's lawn across the street, blade of grass by blade of grass, it better be a really, (laughs) better be some nice blades of grass.
0: I mean, is there anything more specific in his style?
1: I don't know how I'm going to explain this, but it's incredibly lucid. It's beautiful, but it's also, to me, it's so clear and smart, but at the same time, there's music to it. And so you have these two, you have the very analytic voice, and you have the, the very kind of musical voice. And and I think often those don't go together so well. Because I didn't come at it in any kind of systematic way, like I haven't sat and done that comparison to sort of be able to explain it in terms of his diction or his style or anything like that. I mean, I, I think unlike most contemporary Hebrew writers, he grew up somewhat observant, though not black hat observant. But I think he had a slightly different kind of education than someone like Edgar Carrot or someone like even David Grossman or somebody like that. And so I suspect there's a print of that in his Hebrew, even though I I don't think he necessarily uses, for instance, like a lot of rabbinic Hebrew, but a meaningful part of his Hebrew came from the liturgy, right, of, of some sort or another. So that's a possible answer. I'd be interested in if he would agree with it.
0: How did you get into translating from Hebrew and how did you get into translating this book?
1: I translated one book before then and it had never been my plan to be a translator at all. Like I published, I mean, can I tell, I can t- can I tell you the story of how it's a short story, of how I came to translate the book?
0: Please go ahead. I wrote a short story collection called The Task of This Translator, and it was a joke
1: at the time, when the title of the story collection. And so about 10 years later, I translated a soft shores book called Moti, which I also highly recommend. Excellent book. M-O-T-T-I. Okay. Super weird book. In its way, as weird as this one, though, in totally different ways. Him and Jor are kind of friends, and I met both of them when I was in Israel. And the Institute for the Translation of Hebrew Literature, which funded Asaf's translation contacted me and asked me if I just to take a look and consider translating Drawer's book and I at that time was convinced I was not going to translate another book I wasn't interested in it But I agreed to let them send it to me. And I remember I printed out 20 pages to read on a plane because I have just enough integrity that I felt like if I read 20 pages, it'll be enough to say I'm not interested for a good reason. And I remember sitting on the plane and reading like three pages and just thinking, crap, I have to do this.
0: And I didn't want to do it. And I was just like, this is just so good. And as for Burstein's own writing career, what could you tell about that?
1: He has a Ph.D. in literature, as a sort of important chunk of Israeli writers do. And he wrote his dissertation on the writer Yaakov Shabtai, who wrote a novel a lot of people consider the greatest Hebrew novel of all time, and I, I would agree in its way. Past Continuous. Past Continuous. It's a masterpiece. It's a single paragraph in Hebrew, the whole book. And it's this. also, it's a giant, it's like a realist novel put in a blender. And it's an amazing, amazing book.
0: Briefly, Todd wrote an article published in tablet on past continuous. Easy to find if you search the terms Hasak Lowy Past Continuous. The author's name is Shabtai S-H A. B-T-A-I, and the article is about Todd's fortuitous encounter with past continuous as a graduate student, as well as the central and exalted place that Shabtai's novel occupies in Israeli literature, which is wrapped up in the way it illustrated the changing face of Israeli politics at the end of the 70s. There's also this description of past continuous, which links it, I think, to Netanya. Quote, the primary obsession of the narrator is exhaustive description detailing elements while positioning them within the novel's vast network of relations, which has, at its center, three young men, nine months, and the city of Tel Aviv, but which relentlessly branches out to include dozens of secondary characters, large chunks of the 20th century, and places all over the world.
1: Yeah, so Dror, I know, was working on a dissertation. I don't know... If he was writing fiction simultaneously or waited until he was done with his academic work before he turned to fiction.
0: So a couple of episodes ago, we did a podcast about Orly Castel-Bloom's Human Parts. And I noticed that you had written an article in Tablet about her new novel, which has just come out. It's called The Egyptian Novel. Uh, you translated it. So I'm wondering what you can tell us about that novel.
1: Orly Castelbloom's had a very unusual and interesting career because she started as Whatever shade of postmodernist she was, she was 100% a postmodernist writer. And her work is kind of gone in this strange reverse chronology. So after she was very, very, very established as a writer, she published a realist novel. In an interview, she said, I always told myself by the age of 40, I'd write a realist novel, which is the greatest non-explanation for why you would write an entire novel in a different way. She's a writer in many ways. It's always kind of trying to figure out where she's going to land in terms of available prose Modes. And I think this novel is so interesting because, A, it's not a novel, even though it's called the Egyptian novel. It's really a collection of short stories. I think it's highly autobiographical. The most coherent piece of it is that there's a series of stories about the generation of her parents, which were these Egyptian Jews who came to Palestine and Israel in the 40s and got swept up in the Zionist story, but because they were North African Jews and not European Jews, they were in a very unenviable place in the society. But then there's a chapter in the middle of it that takes place during the Spanish Inquisition. There's a chapter of it that takes place in Cairo during the Arab Spring. And those chapters, again, it's this other case of like things that belong and don't clearly belong in a book at the same time. I think one of the things that made her a postmodernist early on was that she was somebody who was really just brutalizing Hebrew in an interesting way of playing with idioms. One of the strains of postmodernist that she was was like real skepticism about language's ability to do what we tend to think it can do unproblematically most of the time. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting about this book is that in some ways her language is always going to be super interesting. And I think for her, the question is always like, are you going to land on the sort of right subject and design for the book? And I think there's something grounding in the fact that this is such an autobiographical book. It often, it can ground it in a way. And I think that's the thing I really love about this book. Um, Like it has all the kind of the wit of her other writing, but it's a really somber book at the same time, if that makes sense.
0: But That sounds really good. I have to say that in human parts, there was a certain unevenness. Like at times in this book about this very broad cast of characters, the novelist followed what I thought were the wrong characters or the weaker characters. It was a risk she took, and it showed up in the final book. So, between Burstein and Castell Bloom, those are two of the stranger novels I've read probably in the last 10 years. And I'm wondering, uh, in light of some of the things we talked about earlier, if If there's something about literature coming out of Israel that, or if there's something about the literary culture there that is more supportive of that kind of work, I'm wondering if it's because, for example, the commercial stakes are much lower, and therefore the doors are more open.
1: So I'll give you a theory about Hebrew literature that's not totally mine, but answers this question... I think Hebrew literature, until about 10 or 15 years ago, was a very good argument for elitism as a cultural force. So what I mean by that is the Hebrew writers and the Hebrew literary establishment were highly revered. And there were people like certain critics, certain writers, certain publishers, many of whom occupied by the same person. So Menachem Perry was both the chair of the literature department at Tel Aviv and the editor of the, one of the most important series, uh, fiction series in the country he did both of those things and these people would take a piece of work and and say you the masses need to read this we know it's really good and not because it's easy but because it's really good and it's really smart and it's you know it's high literature and they would get people to read 277 page books that are one paragraph right they could get people to read that and In the last 10 or 15 years, it's become a really, really commercial literature, and now it feels much more like a North American literature. It's a literature about bestsellers. It's a literature about lowest common denominator. It's a literature that's for a culture that's incredibly visual at this point. But I think what that meant, to get back to your question, was that there is a tradition of publishers and editors and newspaper reviewers having a kind of aspirational relationship to literature as something that's not always easy and something that's not always kind of...
0: Immediately gratifying.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a tradition of, yeah, this is weird and you're going to read it. Or, yeah, this is hard and you're going to read it.
0: And, And what you're saying is that the literature is better off for that.
1: I think so. I realize that's not a very popular stance. But I think when it comes to literature... If you have the right people, and they really know. And, and again, their party is not necessarily selling a lot of books, but trying to put out work that they really believe in, even if it's not extremely accessible or not obviously commercial. I, I think it's obviously inaccurate to say that there's nothing of that sort happening in North American publishing. But I think in most cases, it's sort of the exception that proves the rule. So going back to the example we talked about before, Ben Lerner's Atocha Station, which had some kind of success, maybe more critical than commercial, but we did okay commercially. I don't think it's coincidence that it was published by who it was initially published by.
0: Okay, I find this subject exciting because tracing the origins of conventions, conventions about writing novels, reading novels, reviewing and discussing novels, conventions that are never inevitable when they're being formed, but always seen that way in retrospect, Tracing those conventions is something that I think is inherently interesting because it affects the way we read and write and think, and I mean produce as well. And also because in talking about these conventions, you get to see exceptions to the rule that open new paths, which brings me back to the pleasure of having read Natanya. I close the interview by asking Todd what he's up to these days.
1: I'm working on a number of things. The main thing I'm working on right now is a book on nonviolent activism in the 20th century, and it's for children. Okay. That's what I'm working for. Work for Hire Project, which was a history of Americans' women's suffrage movement. And I enjoyed doing that. And I wanted to write another book like that that was just mine.
0: What are the titles of the two books?
1: The one that's about to come out is called Roses and Radicals, colon, the epic story of how women won the right to vote. It's being published by Penguin, by Viking. The one that I'm writing now, the working title is We Are Power my writing career is really incoherent it's a source of constant existential confusion of what i'm I'm doing
0: many many thanks to todd Hassack lowey and to executive producer peter cox who worked overtime on this episode next week we're back on track with i pity the poor immigrant by zachary lazar last thing In putting together this podcast, I realized that the first ever episode we did was on Leaving the Atocha Station by Ben Lerner. And episode 15 was The Devil by Leo Tolstoy. And speaking of Tolstoy.
1: In the novel, the voice that speaks the first sentence, then the second, and so onward, called the voice of the narrator, has, to begin with, no authority at all. Authority must be earned. On the novelist, author lies the onus to build up out of nothing such authority. No one is better at building up authority than Tolstoy. In this sense of the word, Tolstoy is the exemplary author.